Hello, this is Craig Camp, and welcome to a special edition of the Truant Talk podcast, recorded during the National Biodynamic Conference in Westminster, Colorado, this November. Please excuse the quality of these recordings made during the conference in public places using Bluetooth microphones. However, I am sure you will find the content more than worthwhile. The first segment is a discussion between Dr. Lynn Carpenter-Boggs, a professor of soil science and chair of crop and soil sciences at Washington State University, and Trun Vineyard's director of agriculture, Garrett Long. Her research and teaching have included soil microbiology, alternative agricultural systems, and composting. Her work often bridges the gap between biodynamic grower observations and scientific principles. In our second segment, we present Garrett's keynote address at the end of the conference that focused on the future of biodynamics 100 years after Rudolf Steiner gave the agriculture lectures that formed the foundations of biodynamic and organic agriculture. The conference was exciting, bringing together an incredibly diverse range of biodynamic farmers. As the conference was interrupted by COVID, this is the first time the community has been able to gather since 2018. It is always an amazing opportunity to discuss the challenges of farming biodynamically with other farmers. I am sure you'll find this podcast episode full of interesting insights into biodynamics. My name is Garrett Long. I'm the Director of Agriculture at Truon Vineyard, and we are at the annual biodynamic conference in Westminster, Colorado. And I'm joined today by Washington State University Professor of Soil Science, Lynn Carpenter-Boggs. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Garrett. Great to be here. Lynn, can you start out by telling us how did you get into researching biodynamics? This is a really unique thing for a professor at a land-grant university to involve biodynamics in her uh, research career. How did you get into that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, most of what I do now isn't isn't explicitly about biodynamics. Um, it is, but it's almost all about um, how how does life work with more life in agriculture. Um, but I, I got into biodynamics work very explicitly in my uh, during my PhD, and. Um, I, I had first heard about biodynamics in the in the early 90s, and I uh, was curious about it um, during my master's degree, and I, I, I couldn't find anybody who would even talk to me about it at that time. And uh, so I, you know, just learned some things on, on the side, and um, as I uh, was funding my work for my master's degree, I uh, luckily got a, a fellowship um, and I figured out that I could squirrel away a lot of my money and finish up the work that I said I was going to do and then do what I wanted. <laughs> uh, and so, um, so I was planning to do that or hoping to do that. And, um, some, some folks at, at, um, the university I was at, I don't want to incriminate anybody unnecessarily, but these people brought in Fred Kirschenman. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a real skeptic who, about it. Oh, no, no, no. You're thinking, I don't remember his Kirschman name. Kirschman. Kirschman. Yeah, no, Fred Kirschenman. Uh, he headed the Leopold Institute for many years uh, in Iowa. Uh, but he's he was also a biodynamic farmer. And I happen to know about Fred because, because he's... He was a huge biodynamic farmer, but he's also a philosopher. And so he, he was brought into my university to talk about paradigm shifts in the agriculture and how new ideas take hold. Mm-hmm. And it was a fascinating talk. Nowhere in it did he say the word biodynamic. And, uh, but, but after the talk, there a few of us went to a different room and we're just having a conversation and he kind of let slip that he practiced biodynamics on his farm. And I happened to be on the opposite side of the table from Fred. And when he said biodynamics, I saw every head in the room swivel to look at him and say, what, what is that? 
tell us more. And a few people had heard of it and they were like, oh, I, I can't believe you do this. And it just, it showed me that people were hungry for that information. Yeah. And where, whereas I had been curious about it before, then I knew I had to find a way to, to pursue that because people were really hungry for it and it's very difficult to find the, the funds and resources to ask those questions. Yeah. So I, I did it because I had to. And, and the folks in the room that with the head swivel, these are professors, these are deans, who was so hungry yeah, for more? Yeah, right, professors, USDA scientists, graduate students. Yeah. yeah. And I also came across your work through John Reganold as well, who is another now professor emeritus from Washington State, and he's done quite a bit of research himself around biodynamics. And I associate the two of you uh, for that reason, that unique quality that you've both brought that into your research lab. I wonder, is there something about Wazoo, about Washington State University that, what is their perspective on biodynamics? Right. Well, again, I, you know, I, we don't talk about it much. Um, I, I do, I, I have, I have one lecture um, in in uh, one of my classes that I do about about biodynamics, and you know, it's it's introduced in several classes as just another type of alternative ag. Um, but you know, it's not just myself and John who's emeritus in another six weeks. But oh, excuse me, thank you. <laughs> uh, um, but also Walter Goldstein, mm. Goldstein uh, did his PhD at WSU in the 80s, and he, he wasn't—he wasn't explicitly biodynamics biodynamic at that point, but um, certainly is you know one of the most important U.S. biodynamic researchers um, since, since then. Um, and so I, I'm not sure why, they, you know, there, there have been a few key people who've just been open. Um, you know, there, there's uh, also very important work from Bob Papendick, uh, who is with the USCA ARS. Uh, he wrote a, a um, well, he led a group that researched um, organic agriculture and um, just, you know, ex expose this organic agriculture as something that actually might make sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of shocking to the rest of the USDA. <laughs> Which hopefully the, the, the trend is moved away from that these days and there's much more acceptance and advocacy around organics, but this was a different time. At, at least acceptance. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's still... I'll take it too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, uh, given this history, and Jennifer Reeve also right. came through Washington mm -hmm. State and yeah, has her own research with, lab right, in exactly. Utah or Utah State? Uh, Utah State. Yeah. And, and so there's this little hub almost, if I may, of biodynamic research coming out of Wazoo. At the higher levels, what, what, is, what is the reaction to this kind of... Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know... It, it's been it's been fascinating. Um, you know, one of the very important things I learned doing that work was that everybody's biased. You know, and, and um, science is supposed to be non-biased, but <laughs> uh, it's not always. And um, yeah, many times the people who scream the loudest about you know, ideals like that are, are following them the, the least. Um, so lots of scientists are biased against um, biodynamics or anything that is too far out of the, the ordinary. Um, but at the same time, um, it's kind of like um, talking to anybody that you, you're not already their best friend. You try to find common language. Yeah. Uh, you, you try to speak speak someone else's language and find the things that are important to them and express what's important to you in a way that's also important to them. So biodynamics is, at least some aspects of biodynamics are researchable. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the kinds of questions that you ask about it and, and how you go about trying to answer those questions. Yeah. 
And um, that's been really interesting because um, that kind of approach, you know, I think of it as like, oh, trying to bridge this, but it also tends to really annoy people on both sides because then you find that, you know, many times I'm really annoying to the hardcore biodynamic people because I don't find that the preparations change the world overnight. And I'm really annoying to um, what's, you know, considered con conventional um, agricultural scientists because I, I'm even asking these questions. Yeah. You know, that's annoying. Uh, so I figure, you know, if I annoy a lot of people in the room equally, then I'm probably about in the right place. Yeah. Uh, but, but, um, you know, then there are, there, I'm not alone in, in that idea. You know, lots of people are seeing that, okay, this is, there are lots of interesting things that people are doing, trying, and... Um, as long as we look at are, are willing to look at things objectively, take measures, make hypotheses, um, these these things are approachable. Yeah, and we can have a, a sane conversation about things that work or don't work. So let's dig into that a little bit more. I I find myself when I think about biodynamic research, thinking about the importance of looking to the future. And, and just doing good science is, is starting with a good research question and formulating a hypothesis around that that is testable. How can we measure this? How can we quantify this, right? And so can you walk us through how you've formulated some of your research in the past to be able to actually test it? And, and what are some of those metrics that you're using to analyze, for example, the effects of preparations on compost formation and and that sort of thing. Let's talk about the scientific process and the mm -hmm. questions that we ask. Mm -hmm. Right. And and the, the questions that we're able to ask definitely change over time too, depending on what what tools we have. Mm -hmm. So um, you know the, the, the compost work um, you know we we we're primarily asking just is there a difference between uh, compost that's developed using the biodynamic preparations and method and compost that develops from the same feedstocks in the same place, uh, uh, but not using the preparations. Um, so the, and the, the, the methods that uh, were used to assess that <laughs> in terms of what I could get, gather data about were things like tracking the temperature, um, microbial activities at, at various time points during the, the composting process. Um, we, we, uh, we're, we're doing um, phospholipid uh, microbial community comparisons. Um, yeah, so several different kind of enzyme activities and um, nitrate formation, which is an indicator of of kind of late stage compost uh, maturity. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, same kind of things that any <laughs> anybody would ask about. Um, yeah, how compost is developing, and then and then uh, and then we asked, all right, do these behave differently once we add them to the soil, and do the do the plants perform differently? Um, so, you know, then we brought those composts out to field plots, you know, well replicated and all of that and two different sites and full years and um, you know, measuring plant performance, weed populations, yields, um, again, kind of standard agronomic measures. Yeah, yeah. And what, what were your results of that composting study briefly? Did you find differences between the, the two different methodologies? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what is what's commonly been we we found what's commonly been found about biodynamic compost is that it it's a it's a little bit warmer and or it stays warmer a bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know we really weren't finding huge temperature differences, but but consistent. And um, 
uh, a, a bit higher activity levels during the composting process. Um, and that the, the biodynamic compost also was a, a bit mature faster. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not, not huge differences. And once we put those out onto, onto land, you know, what we were seeing is that most agricultural soils are really hungry for carbon and compost and organic materials. And um, the, the reaction to any kind of compost is so great that the difference you'll see, at least in the short term, mm -hmm. between biodynamic and non-biodynamic compost is very, very small. Yeah. You know, what, what the land really wants is that compost in ever, any way it can get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm sure that was a disappointing result for the hardcore biodynamic uh, practitioners. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and I and I can understand part of that and, and 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 I hear that, you know, well, of course, you know, you're you're limited to a couple of years study and you won't see your results. And that, that may very well be. You know, there there are definitely limitations in, you know, the way a lot of ag studies are funded and again I was like doing things on a shoestring and like, you know, but <laughs> all this money I had squirreled away from other things. Uh, so it was by necessity, you know, a lot of, a lot of short-term things. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, so, so I'm, I'm really uh, interested in doing, doing more projects in the future with producers who have been, who have been using methods for longer term. But then you get into other kinds of problems where wherein you don't have proper controls or yeah. comparisons of things. So these are always it's, challenges it's of conducting yeah. on-farm research. Right. One, getting the cooperation of the growers to uphold your research methodologies. Yeah. Don't, and two, don't harvest before I get my data. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I'm interested to talk about the the significance of those results as well. You know, I'm understand that it may have been disappointing to biodynamic practitioners that were hoping for more of a subtle change, but you told me a great story yesterday about maybe who your results were significant to. Right, right. And and so in order to, to publish a study and, and in order for it to be, you know, to fit into the the, the scientific paradigm and be, um, you know, refereed and, and accepted, we go through a process of randomization and collecting data and applying statistics to it. And, and it's, a, it's quite a high bar um, just mathematically to be able to tell the difference between, uh, between treatments. Um, it needs to be very reliably different and, and replicable and repeatable. Yeah. And, um, but not everything that's important fits into that. And yeah, I, I had, a beautiful, completely non-replicable experience uh, doing that composting work. Um, so, the way the way things were set up, I would I would have one pile of feed composting feedstocks that was treated with the BD preps, and one of the same feedstock, same size of pile, right next to it. It was not not treated with the preps. Um, and, you know, I would go out there every few days and take my temperature readings and take samples and um, did this over many, many months, had these pairs of the compost piles. So, and that included doing this over a winter. So um, for several months I would go out there and there was snow on the ground, but these composting piles were, were hot inside. And I started noticing that the, the biodynamic pile uh, was just warm enough, just a few degrees warmer, and maybe the temperature was distributed a little bit differently, but the BD piles didn't have snow on top. And the non-BD piles were warm inside, but they would have snow on top. And I started noticing that there was this fox coming around from, you know, from the, um, the tops of trees half a mile away. And the fox had figured out that it could go on top of the biodynamic compost pile and it was warm 
and there was no snow there. <laughs> and so then every time I would go out there and there was snow on the ground, I would see these fox tracks going on top of the BB pile. And uh, yeah, so that's why we can talk about things that are biologically significant versus but statistically significant mm -hmm. and things that are replicable and things that are non-replicable but may be very very important so you know to that fox this is a one individual organism that has a binary choice yeah and it made that choice consistently, yeah, consistently. right um yeah maybe that's how i could have taken data on it, it was like consistency of the choice <laughs> i don't know but um yeah, I I talk about well, you know, is is something is is that two degree temperature really biologically significant? You know, you can argue well, maybe it's it's not, but but what does the fox say? The yeah. fox said that it was it was significant to that fox. Yeah. 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 So what do you what do you make of that? It it sounds like if I'm to interpret that that science is is as we know it in this rigorous quantitative measure that science maybe missing out on something that is important because it doesn't follow the exact rules um, of a peer-reviewed journal, right? Mm -hmm. what, what, what might we be missing? What opportunities do we have, especially in the realm of biodynamic research, to explore these more, maybe more challenging or maybe even impossible to test hypotheses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't think that problem is is unique to biodynamic work. I think that it's it's really just an evolution of science and of human observation. You know, we're we're getting we're getting more fine and more fine abilities of observation and measurement mm. uh, of all kinds of things. So, you know, I I don't necessarily think it's um, like a, a permanent limitation of things that's any different than um, than the fact that you know people who don't approach things scientifically are also limited in the ways that they can understand things. Um, it's it's evolution, you know. But I but I do think that it's a it's a the time is you know more and more ripe for coevolution of that. Yeah. So you know what are the things that we're observing that that seem to be important and can we measure that and are we certain about what we think we're seeing that's how it comes together yeah one example i think of in our own farming practices at troon is we have guests who've been wine club members for many years and they come back you know we've been in this five-year transition using biodynamic and regenerative practices and they come back to the tasting room and they're sitting in the garden during the summer months and they'll comment on the noise of the birds. They'll comment on just the vitality and the life, the amount of insect life. They'll walk out to our native uh, plant garden that's just steps from the tasting room and comment about just the buzz of energy around that. And it seems that would be a biologically significant result, but it is also measurable. We can go out there and we can do uh, surveys, you know, bird surveys, insect surveys, plant surveys, we can count diversity of species abundance and we can quantify that. And so I think that's an interesting example of how we actually can measure something that is perceptible and maybe different about a biodynamic farm. And if you were to just ask the general question of, well, what, what, what about a biodynamic farm is attracting all these birds? That's maybe not the right question, but we can quantify the number of mm -hmm. birds. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah, and and yet, you know, that that may not have been an initial question. Mm. You know, you, you you don't necessarily set out to do biodynamic farming so that you can have more birds, mm -hmm. but it's something that once you start doing it and are established into it, you see that effect. Yeah, and and then you know, as you see that consistently, you want to know like, is 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 that real? Like, are are other farms experiencing that? And and can we quantify that? And yeah, then we should be able to. Yeah, I think that's so important as we look to the future. To you know, these as you just pointed out, there are observations we can make that lead to more research questions, right? And uh, I think all of us as researchers and and scientists 
understand that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're building off of all of the work that has come before. And if we can make novel observations on a biodynamic farm or in our own research, uh, it leads to new novel questions. And hopefully the interventions or new tools might lead to novel ways of testing those new mm -hmm. questions. So as we look to the future, either in your own research at Washington State or just within the wider biodynamic community, what do you see as those important questions? What do you see as those potentially novel tools that we might use? Right. Well, um, in, in the world of science that I know a bit more about, I, I'm a soil scientists and know more about the fertility and, and microbiology side. And um, there have been real advancements in uh, how we can how we can assess microbial communities. Uh, and um, there's been uh, with that too, you know, there's continuing evolution and uh, we are moving from a, a time when we could kind of see things uh, with watercolors um, to a time when we, we can make um, pixelated pictures, but not understand what the whole picture means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but we have a whole lot of pixels. Um, and so now it's moving toward uh, yeah, really deciphering what each of those pixels means. Yeah. So that is an exciting area. Um, and yeah, I was just talking with like Walter Goldstein about you know the, the possibility of of doing DNA based uh, mic microbial assessments on some of the work that he's doing um, with um, yeah very very interesting corn varieties he's developing. Yeah. And, and the communities that associate with those. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I think that there are a lot more uh, researchers who are interested in the kinds of uh, molecular uh, signaling between organisms of, of various kinds, between plants, uh, between plants and insects, um, uh, plants and birds, insects and birds, in insect to insect, uh, pathogen to endophyte. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. So this the the communications. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's an, an amazing area. It seems like research. There's loads of questions we could ask given these new genomic and DNA sequencing techniques that are evolving very rapidly, right, and our ability to interpret what I understand to be just huge data sets um, requiring a huge amount of analytical te technology. Mm -hmm. um, what, are, what are some of those applications? You talked about maybe testing, mm -hmm. what, what are the microbial yeah. relationships in Walter's corn, for example? That, yeah. Oh, uh, well, that's kind of his story to tell, and I hope I hope okay. that maybe you answer, you ask ask him some of those questions. Sure. Uh, okay, well, maybe like, a more fair question. So, 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 some, so something I'm working on. So I've been uh, playing with compost teas for, for some years. And um, this is, again, something that, you know, most researchers will kind of roll their eyes at. Uh, and, and for good reason. Like, there's been a, way too much hype. And um, um, oh, misinformation um, and you know wishful thinking uh, <laughs> yeah. around compost teas and um, a lot of trials and failures. Or, um, um, but <laughs> there's you know that there's also work that can be done so one of the things that my program has done is is just come up with four different recipes and some of those are are things that you know other people have used and some we just kind of made up uh, but we can we can take one given compost and go through different processes and inputs into them and come up with four very different teas with with different microbial communities 
in a in a pretty consistent way. So now we at least have something that we can uh, clearly differentiate mm -hmm. and and ask questions about. Well, how are these behaving uh, on on plants and in soils? And um, so we can we can look at the um, you know, the the growth responses, the chemical responses, and the microbial communities in them. Um, so this is a this is a fun area and. Yeah. <laughs> And um, yeah, we're starting a project now looking for growers who are using composties, by the way, um, people can contact us. Um, so we wanna know what growers are actually doing out there and what are they hoping to see from composties? What, are they, what do they need a compostee to be able to do? Yeah. And how do we make something that does that? Yeah. Um, and are any of them actually doing that? Yeah. Those things that we want them to do. And if the ones that are, why are they effective? Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring up compost tea as that's what I did my master's research focused on, looking at the effects of compost tea on plant growth, less so than pathogen suppression, which is so much of the academic literature mm -hmm. around compost tea. Um, but I got there going back to that idea of sort of what, what do our advisors and what do the higher-ups at universities think of biodynamics, I was told by multiple people that they don't consider biodynamics, a biodynamic treatment in a research project to be any different than organic. There's no sense in testing them as separate individual treatments. They're the same. And sort of brushed away the idea, I was discouraged from studying things like maybe the biodynamic preparations and, and instead move towards compost tea, which as we said, can be overhyped and all of that too. But I just think that that is interesting, the directions of our research or, of, of, you know, you have a whole research lab and, and trajectory of your career and how it can be influenced by our mentors or advisors and, and, and you went your own way. You have recently started um, a project involving human composting, right? Can you tell us about the new law in Washington State and what you've been working on? Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess it had been a few years since I had done anything weird enough. So <laughs> um, I, I've been involved with um, livestock mortality composting since the late 90s and um, help to introduce or at least po popularize livestock mortality composting in Washington in the, in the 2000s. And um, a, a grad student um, uh, did some fabulous demonstrations around the state and, and we put together a, um, a extension bulletin about on-farm mortality composting. And uh, so in 2014, um, this, this uh, um, person I'd never met before called me up out of the blue and said, well, have you ever thought about um, whether this could be used for, for people? Uh, and well, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it's not, it's not a, a, a big leap, at least biologically or, you know, in terms of a physical process um, you know once you see what happens to happens to a cow or a horse I mean you know a, a human body is is very um, it seems very doable but uh, in terms of a, a, a social construct absolutely not you know um, so yeah I, I mean it was kind of a almost a common joke among people who compost livestock mortalities of, oh, you better be nice to me, you know, I know what to do with you. Uh, <laughs> but um, for somebody to, to really um, think about, you know, how, how would we bring this in um, as something that uh, helps to address some of the environmental and social issues that we have in our, in our current funeral system um, and, and do that with the, with real honesty and, um, uh, you know, a sense of just, yeah, can, can we realistically do this was, was an amazing conversation. So yeah, I started working with Katrina Spade then and in, in 2018, um, we did the, the first uh, trials of, of 
human composting or what's now legally called natural organic reduction. We, we did the first trials at WSU, which was, which was amazing, not just in that, you know, we did it and it was groundbreaking, but it was also pretty amazing that the university um, made a structure that allowed us to do that. And um, it literally, it took us 10 months of paperwork and um, research assurances to get ready to do that. Mm. And the, the university literally made up hoops for us to jump through. <laughs> but in the end, they allowed us to do it. Yeah. And, and all of the, that process was so that they could, so that they could allow us to do that. And, and as a research institution, support that as, as viable research. So, um, you know, I, I, it was, it was uh, annoying and a lot of work, but I, but I appreciate really what um, that has done for, yeah, just for us to be able to, to, to do that in, um, in a structured way and ask good questions and show that it works. So yeah, it's actually now legal in seven states and counting. I've heard that there are at least 12 states that are, uh, that are considering it. And um, Washington has uh, three functioning um, companies that are, that are doing it. Um, there's uh, at least one in Colorado now also. Yeah, so it's 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 very exciting work, and it's it's something that um, you know is is not just uh, just innovative, but it's something that strikes people in a way, uh, a, a very substantive way of how do we reconnect with the earth? Yeah. How do we how do we remember um, that? that we're really part of this system yeah and in our last act on this earth how do we not continue to burden it mm -hmm. yeah. how do we give a little bit back yeah. yeah i imagine a lot of your research informed deeply these companies and their practices and their methodologies and i would venture and suggest strongly that your research, both in the biodynamic realm, human composting, what was that phrase you said? Natural? Natural organic reduction. And in natural organic reduction have destigmatized these topics. Right. Have made them acceptable yeah. in the research, in the university research programs in society at large. Now that you're, you've been here at the biodynamic conference for the last few days, have you encountered any, have you had any ideas about what your next weird <laughs> research question might be? And, and <laughs> uh, well, so the, there are lots of good questions out there and I, I had this idea for a while and, and parts of it have been coming together, but there's there's a real opportunity of um, building a building a functional participatory research network mm. among willing researchers and willing producers, um, <laughs> where we we can feed off of each other. Um, that um, you know, definitely the research questions should not all be coming from researchers. They should primarily be coming from people observing things in the field and who need answers of uh, whether whether things are going to work or how they're working. Um, and uh, and and researchers need um, yeah a distributed network of of informed um, data keepers and. Uh, you know, this is this is happening in in some in many different areas in agriculture too. There's this this that's considered a coevolution, yeah. um, and uh, I, I think that the the biodynamic world um, or biodynamic slash regenerative regenerative slash organic world is 
is, um, is a good one for that because there are so many people doing these practices who are very observant and, and looking at things in a very different way and um, you know, willing, willing to um, willing to ask the questions of, you know, how do we how do we do this better? Um, is this is this repeatable? Um, and I think just uh, uh, a real acceptance of of the evolution of agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm personally really looking forward to that future. I've been in discussions with other members of this biodynamic movement, organizations like the Josephine Porter Institute, the Fellowship of Preparation Makers. There are existing hubs of research communities. There are researchers and farmers asking really interesting questions and really compelling questions. And I think you, you nailed it on the head. We need to be sharing our data. We need those um, keepers of the data, um, and and we need to continue sharing with each other, um, not just our results and our and our questions, but our methodologies, and to continue building that functional community and that network. I I see as a really really important uh, part of this next hundred years as we look back on this hundred year old practice of biodynamics, and we look forward to the next hundred years um, building a strong functional research community. Um, couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great. This and, was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And now for Garrett's keynote speech as part of the closing session of the conference, The Future of Biodynamics, The Next 100 Years. Oh, thank you. And thanks also to all the hardworking staff, the Weston, Social Enterprise, and of course the BDA. This has been a really incredible gathering. Um, I've also been very deeply humbled by the remarkable wisdom of the presenters and participants at this conference. And I'm grateful for the BIPOC community present here and their willingness to share their stories and traditional ecological knowledge. We're in the presence of esteemed elders who have graciously served as our mentors, willingly ingratiating the next generation of biodynamic practitioners. They're the leaders of this movement in a time of great peril. Without several important mentors in my life, I would not be the farmer, soil scientist, or human being that I am today. After graduating from college with a biology degree, by great fortune, I found myself in Southern California at Apricot Lane Farms. And in the first month of my farming journey, we were joined by a quirky fellow, the Louisiana drawl, and dressed in all white linen, and he was some purported guru of biodynamics, which at the time I knew next to nothing about. His name was Alan York. Before and after Alan's passing, we were also joined by Matthias Baker and Andrew Beatty, a sort of dream team of biodynamic consultants and prep makers. And after my first two immersive years of farming, and I told them I was interested in grad school. They encouraged me to continue farming if that's what I wanted to do. But I knew that Alan had read all of the technical ecology and horticulture textbooks himself, and so I ignored their advice and pursued my master's anyway. In my decision to attend grad school, I gathered inspiration from Aaron Fried Pfeiffer's biography. He was encouraged by Steiner to pursue the traditional academic training in material quantitative science and to bring it back to spiritual science. I learned how to set up experiments and long-term soil health monitoring programs, and I learned how to measure and quantify and statistically analyze my thesis results. And I voraciously read any published research on biodynamics and deepened my technical understanding of soil health, how to measure it, how to marry science and art and tell stories about the unsung heroes of healthy ecosystems that exist thanklessly underfoot. I learned about the mycorrhizal fungi that expand the root zone of plants and allow for the exchange of resources. I learned about the research of Suzanne Samard, a brilliant researcher in British Columbia who used novel methodologies to show that the extensive root mass of mother trees, as she called them, are connected to immature trees throughout the forest via mycorrhizal networks. 
And these mother trees share water and sugar and nutrients with the understory, often with unrelated species. She showed how electrical impulses induce biochemical signaling between trees when the forest is threatened by pests or logging. And in 2017, I finished my master's, and I've since been working on biodynamic farms, especially in the realm of research and outreach, while continuing to cut my teeth growing vegetables and raising livestock. I've been practicing biodynamics for a decade now, and every season deepening my understanding of anthroposophy and of prep work, inviting in elementals and gathering with farmers and practitioners of all levels to share and learn. Last month, I helped organize a fall prep making gathering at Troon Vineyard, where I've served as the Director of Agriculture for the last two years. And we were kindly joined by Marjorie, who shared with us her very practical and scientific understanding of the preps, as well as the history of the Southern Oregon Biodynamic Group. Through Marjorie, I learned of Devin Strong and the community he generously cultivated in the place that I only recently started calling home. The seeds Devin planted have sprouted again and they were honored by the 20-some attendees of the newly revived chapter of Southern Oregon Biodynamics, or as we've started calling it, SOB. <laughs> Prep-making gatherings are essential to the cultural sphere, and through educational workshops and thoughtful experimentation, we can collectively build our understanding of biodynamics scientifically. There's been relatively little peer-reviewed research published in the US, and there exists only a handful of courageous PhDs willing to risk their reputation by asking if and how the preparations impact compost or how that compost impacts plants. Why is it risky for academics to wade into the waters of biodynamics? What stigmas hold this present community back from advancing our understanding of biodynamics and ultimately of collective consciousness? The typical quantitative measures of weight and number are essential to the scientific process, but they're not the complete picture. Anyone who set foot on a mature biodynamic farm and experienced the cacophony of bird songs in the springtime or the ruckus of pollinators feeding on native plants understands that there's something distinctive and intangible about the health and vitality of biodynamic farms. And we can do surveys and we can count these birds and insects and catalog biodiversity as a measure of ecosystem functionality, and we should. But simply demonstrating that there are more abundant and diverse bird populations is not the whole picture. I would ask why? Why do these birds prefer to nest and feed on these farms? There exists an important difference between statistical significance in research and biological significance. At this conference, we were joined by one of those brave researchers I mentioned earlier. Dr. Lynn Carpenter-Boggs is a professor of soil science at Washington State University. And in her presentation, she shared with us an incredible story of biological significance. She built compost piles side by side and applied beady preps to one of them. And over winter, as the snow fell, she took temperatures and collected samples at standardized intervals. And her results showed that the center of the biodynamic compost was just slightly warmer, only a degree or two. But it melted the snow on the top of the BD pile. And in her routine visits, she would notice the tracks of a fox this fox would climb the BD compost pile to warm itself. While Lynn's research demonstrated only minor differences between the piles, a finding that I'm sure many BD advocates would be disappointed by, the fox knew the difference. So Lynn insightfully asked, what does the fox know? Lynn's story of the fox is not replicable or publishable to respected to be respected in scientific community. Experiments must be measurable, repeatable, rep replicable. It's a requirement of peer-reviewed scientific journals. More sensitive scientific instruments and novel approaches to measuring ecological phenomenon have profoundly advanced our understanding of the natural world. Examples like using genomics for microbial community analysis or that biochemical signaling I was talking about in Suzanne Smart's research used to identify the importance of mother trees in the forest. I believe that if we ask the right questions and we continue to de develop novel methodologies for testing these hypotheses, that we might be able to unlock a deeper understanding of more esoteric phenomenon in our relationship with the spiritual realm. Doing so would legitimize the practice of biodynamics more broadly and slowly cut away at the stigma that surrounds this research.
I believe strongly that we need to create functional research networks to strengthen the impulse where it already exists and contribute validity by engaging with more traditional centers for academic research as well. We need more on-farm research where producers are asking the questions. We need the biodynamic organizations such as JPI, the Fellowship of Preparation Makers, the BDA, and regional groups to support and facilitate this work. And we need to engage the university researchers, such as Lynn and John Reginald at Wazoo, and Jennifer Reeve at Utah State. We need to identify a hub for this research network, a physical space, maybe, but certainly a platform for sharing ideas and data. And there should be a willingness to support, to support especially with funding, cross-disciplinary research, we need a repository for these novel research questions that are, again, ideally generated by biodynamic practitioners and farmers who ask what matters to the movement. I believe we need to create a mother tree of biodynamic research, a hub that shares resources with the understory and communicates the speed of electricity whenever the movement is threatened. We need to support each other and celebrate diversity, protect our only planet from the harmonic forces that threaten our very existence. I know we're all here because we believe in the healing power of biodynamics, and I believe that clearing the energies that limit our advancement of consciousness to heal the human spirit will allow us to heal our relationship with nature and with each other. Thank you. We are happy to share this podcast from Troon Vineyard, a Demeter Biodynamic and Regenerative Organic Certified Winery in Oregon's Applegate Valley. We farm like the world depends on it by growing produce in our gardens and naturally crafting authentic wines. We will be sharing these in-depth podcasts several times a month. To learn more, I encourage you to visit our website at troonvineyard.com and those of the Regenerative Organic Alliance at regenorganic.org and Demeter Biodynamics at demeter-usa.org. Thanks for sharing our voyage to regenerative agriculture with us.